Psalm 85. You showed favour to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us, O God, our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together to worship you, coming together that we might hear your word. We pray for the help of the Holy Spirit as we speak and as we listen, that together we will hear you speaking into our hearts and that that same Holy Spirit will enable us to live and walk in the light of your word. And all of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 85 is uh, designated as a psalm of the sons of Korah in our Bibles, and as such thought to be very much a communal psalm. This communal lament, most of the commentators suggest, relates to the period after the restoration of Israel following the Babylonian exile, captivity. It could, of course, relate to their original settlement in Canaan and, indeed, many other incidents in the life of Israel. The Psalms of Korah were specific enough to be personal, but generally enough for everyone to use, and to use repeatedly. Indeed, while there are parts of this psalm that seem to sit quite naturally with the post-exile period, is a psalm that can quite easily be used to express the longings of any people or individuals. It's a psalm that can enable us to look back in our experience, become aware of their passions for the salvation of the lost, for the advance of Christ's kingdom, where it has grown down by a myriad of other things. Many of them good and important things, but not all important. 
And however, this psalm helps us to remind ourselves that the work of the gospel is that which is all important. They had returned, if we are referring to the, uh, those who had returned from exile under Zerubbabel, they had begun to rebuild, but had become discouraged by the magnitude of the task and the opposition that faced them. We can read of that, of course, in Ezra and Nehemiah, and we can also see something of what Haggai uh, spoke to them in relation to that. The psalm could also refer to what God had done and passed in relation to Israel and the wilderness wanderings and their disobedience, where we read in the book of Exodus of the plea from Moses, where Moses' plea to God is, Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster upon your people. This certainly has an echo in Psalm 85. Looking over past times and in view of present distress, crying out to the Lord. Whatever specific historical incident the psalm is referring to, it is much to both challenge and encourage us in our present generation. You will see from the service sheet that we have divided this psalm into four sections. The first three verses uh, focus on remembering. The psalmist says in verse uh, 1, verse 1 through to verse 3 of that psalm, You showed favour to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turn from your fierce anger. Here the psalmist is remembering, remembering what God had done in past. What he had done in the past to a people who had found themselves in exile as a result of their disobedience and sin. And surely that was a stimulus to the psalmist's prayer. The psalmist underscores the fact, he says, you showed favor, you restored, you forgave, you set aside your wrath. If we look at the psalm, in the light of it referring to the returned exile, a great deliverance had been brought about by God for his people. They have gone back to Jerusalem with songs of joy. But they soon got a reality check. This was not going to be a picnic for them. There was opposition which ultimately led to discouragement. Now, of course, discouragement is one of the devil's most successful tools in his armory. If he can get us discouraged, if he can get any people discouraged, any individual discouraged, he can get us into a place where we will do nearly anything. We see this how this has worked out as we read through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai. And I encourage you, perhaps, over these coming days to reflect on this truth in these uh, books in the Bible. But don't we know this from personal experience? It is in the moments of discouragement when we are most likely to succumb to some of the temptations that we would never dream of succumbing to when we are living in brighter and in clearer days. The people have come to realize the job on hand would not be without opposition. 
and much of it was going to be just tedious, dogged, sticking at the job on hand. And is that not the hurdle at which we so easily fall? Bringing this truth down to our daily lives, because that is really where I need to do the reality check. Perhaps there is no time when we are more inclined to make great promises. Great promises to ourselves and more importantly to God than at the beginning of a new year. Promises we in all sincerity intend to keep and make a priority in our lives. Our personal prayer lives and daily devotions. Looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Being regular at the prayer meeting. But how soon they get crushed out of our lives. Now this is not intended to send you and me on a guilt trip. But just to speak of what I suspect is common, the common experience of each of us. And that we might encourage one and another in these areas in our lives. And so the psalmist here is remembering, remembering what God has done. And that remembering what God has done causes him to come before God with a sense of plea, with a sense of longing, a sense of desire. We read there in verse 4 where the psalmist says, Restore us again, O God, our Saviour. And put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Here comes this pleading. The psalmist uses what God has done as the basis for his pleading as we read there in those three verses. You see, when the clouds of despondency and discouragement and despair Come, it is easy for us to be tempted to think that the sun has ceased to shine. And here is the psalmist in this situation looking back to what God has done and being encouraged to raise his voice, his heart in prayer and in pleading to this God who has done that he might again do it in his time and generation. And it is good for you and for me to remind ourselves when the clouds of despondency and discouragement and despair come that the sun is still shining. The clouds can, of course, be caused by our own sin, can be caused by lethargy. This is how it was with the returned exiles. Though we must not think that the spiritual darkness Times are necessarily because of some specific sin in our lives. It may be, but it may also be what someone has spoken of as the discipline of darkness. When we need to learn to trust God in the dark times, though it is the opposition of the devil who made things difficult, it was they themselves who yielded to the difficulties. God is sometimes to wait for us to come to terms with his will 
in and for our lives. The danger of discouragement is that discouragement can lead to sin. I remember as a very young Christian reading a comment in a book, never make decisions when you are discouraged because you will invariably find that it is the wrong decision that you made. I found that helpful. What was the chief sin of the returned exiles? Surely it was their indifference to the rebuilding of the temple, indifference to the advance of the work of the kingdom of Christ. We must not miss the thrust of this prayer. Spurgeon has one of his lovely little phrases. Pleading God's former mercies, and in the light of these, pleading for brighter days. This is what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is pleading God's former mercies. Lord, you have done it in the past. And in the light of this, I'm pleading for brighter days, for better days. It is always a hopeful sign when people begin to cry from the heart like this. Because it is an evidence of grace. It is the grace of God that enables you and me to cry with heartfelt cry for the blessing of God upon his work, upon his people, and in the advance of the gospel. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the writings of A.W. Tozer, but he has a book, and the title of it is Born After Midnight. He asked the question, is there any significance in that many of the times of spiritual awakening can be traced in human terms to all-night prayer meetings, half-nights of prayer, etc. His conclusion, and rightly so, I think, is no. But he goes on to comment that it is not the fact that people pray at these unearthly hours, but that those who do so have come to a place of urgency and seriousness that can only be created by the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. God is not bound to work because of the time I set aside to pray. I cannot come to God and say, I have prayed all night, so now you must work. But in times of spiritual awakening, God burdens his people to pray. We find this borne out in the history of revivals. God sets his people pray. Such times of spiritual awakening are, of course, in the hands of a sovereign God. But in God's sovereign purposes, he has chosen to work an answer to the prayers of his people. Again, if I can give you one more of Spurgeon's comments. Spurgeon commented to someone who suggested that answer prayer was just a coincidence. His comment was, strangely, the more I pray, the more coincidences I have. 
The returned exile's great sin was their indifference to the building of the temple, the work of God. They had got their priorities wrong. Here the psalmist is surely asking, must it always be so? Will you not revive us again? Note the reason for this plea as we find there in verse 6. What does the psalmist say? I Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The note and the plea of the psalmist was that the people through God's reviving would rejoice in him and that they might again know God's saving power. That God again may be honoured. That God again may be preeminent among the people. But then we discover here, this word listening comes in. Verse 8, I will listen to what the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints. But let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that the glory may dwell in the land. To cry to God like this brings people into a state of spiritual awareness the awareness of the majesty of God. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He will speak peace to his people. Where there is an acknowledgement of sin and failure, the psalmist reminds us here, there is the voice of peace and the voice of forgiveness. Return not again to folly. This is how they got out of earshot of God's voice. The folly of building their own kingdom, their own house. And they had forgotten about God's house, about the work of God. Many years ago, a student who was at the Fifth Mission Bible College, long before my time, he came from the Highlands of Scotland, and his comment to another colleague was, I feel that I am so distant from God, I scarce can hear the shepherd's voice. I remember Barry Peckham one time making the comment, the thing that is most wonderful to me is that God still speaks to me. Mary had been converted in the Lewis Revival in the late 40s, early 50s. But the thing in later years that amazed her was that God still speaks to her. You and I can take that so easily for granted. We come to God's word. God speaks to us. What an amazing thing that the eternal God should speak to you, should speak to me and address us. Now we need to be careful that we do not equate the tough times in life or the discipline of darkness spoken about earlier, the times when we read our Bible and just don't seem to get anything from it. We try to pray in private and we just struggle, being the result of some specific sin, or indeed to judge our walk with God according to our feelings. We need to remember the words of Luther, Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. 
not else is worth believing. However, we do need to be alert to things that will dull our hearing God speaking to us through his word. Perhaps that's a challenge for your life, a challenge for my life in this new year that we have moved into, that God might help us to be sensitive to such things. Here the psalmist is confident that God will speak peace to repentant people and bring them salvation. The promise of peace for God's people is of course renewed in a special way in the gospel. Jesus is our peace, our salvation. The Lord Jesus is our Savior. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself, the Lord Jesus, is our peace. Our peace. In the last analysis, not about a feeling, but it relates to a person and our relationship to that person. My peace with God does not depend on how I feel, but on my standing in Christ. Through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, making peace through the blood of the cross. My peace with God is not determined on how I feel, but my peace with God relates to my standing in Christ and what Christ has done for me on the cross. Then the psalmist brings us to expectation. We find that verses 10 through 11, and it's elsewhere, of course, within the psalm. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. The answers they give to the prayer of the psalmist are the gifts that accompany the coming of the glory of the Lord to the land. The glory of the Lord. What is coming to the land? Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Here is a reference to an idyllic, an idyllic situation which we'll look at in a moment. But here is a reference to something of the transformation that does come to any land or nation when God visits it uniquely and powerfully in times of revival. What will change the face of Scotland? What will change the face of the UK spiritually and in lots of other ways? It isn't in the last analysis better legislation, important as that is. It is rather by the divine intervention of what we speak about as revival. But this is in the hands of a sovereign God. However, we need to be people of prayer to that end. But it seems the psalmist is speaking to us not only of his expectation of revival, his longing that God would restore them. Spiritual quickening in relation to the returned exiles who have become so discouraged and disheartened, have become disobedient, and who had lost sight of the priority of the kingdom of God. 
The psalmist's expectation sees a time when love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The embrace of love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace, these are essential aspects of God's kingdom. The Apostle Paul speaks of this again in Romans, Romans 4. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when a man or woman is converted, they become part of this kind of a kingdom. Think of the impact such kingdom living can have on our family, our work colleagues, our flatmates. But also think of the impact this has on a community in times of revival. Don Carson makes the comment, It is vital to remember that love and faithfulness both belong to God that righteousness and peace meet and kiss in him. Because of this, God can be both just and the one who justifies the ungodly by graciously giving us his Son. Should it be surprising to discover that among his image bearers, love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace go hand in hand, standing together, or falling together. Look at verse 12. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. If we relate this psalm back to the returning exiles, and God bringing an end to the drought in the land, what transformation would take place in what was formerly a land living with the ravages of drought. This psalm is not just an expression of those remembering what God had done in the past, inspiring the plea that he would again show his mercy and revive his people, bring life to his people. It is a psalm that ultimately points us to both the first and second advent of Christ, It is a psalm that leads us to the cross. Where do love and faithfulness meet together? Where does righteousness and peace kiss each other? It surely is at the cross. Love. The love that is spoken of here is faithful, reliable love. Faithfulness, what is spoken of here? It is truth, it is integrity. What is the righteousness the psalmist is speaking about? It is justice. What is right and for whatever makes things right? Where did that happen? God laying upon Christ our sin, all of our sin. And all of God's wrath against that sin on his Son, it happened at the cross. And peace, the peace that has been spoken about here, is that total well-being. We cannot have peace without the other three. 
Chris Wright makes the comment and speaks of this, of a group hug. Love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace, kissing each other at the cross. We cannot have peace without the other three. And all of these come together at the cross. But this psalm points beyond the birth and death and resurrection of Christ. Points right away to his second coming when he ushers in his perfect kingdom, his new creation. Yes, we are as image bearers and therefore something of love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace should be the mark that distinguishes us. However, we are fallen image bearers, cracked vessels. But when Christ returns, all that will change, not only for God's people, but for this earth itself. There will be new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. Scott read that passage to us. That very creation is groaning and is longing for the return of Christ. You see, you sometimes say, what a beautiful rose. But you and I have never seen a perfect rose. Because the very rose that we look on as being perfect and beautiful has been marred by the fall. But when Jesus comes, not only will these cracked vessels of ours be no longer cracked vessels, and no longer will this earth be scarred as it is, but all will be perfect in the Lord Jesus. Question, of course, we need to ask. Are you part of that kingdom? Because only those who are in Christ are part of that kingdom. Only those who are in Christ can, yes, look to those days when Jesus will come again. And all that is imperfect in us and in this world will be perfect. And all that is unjust will be judged and judged rightly by a sovereign Lord. Now, where are we in all of this? What does this psalm encourage us to do again? It encourages us to remember. It encourages us to remember God's gracious mercies to his failing people. Inspires us to plead for his mercy. Plead for his mercy to his failing people and that we may see that displayed in our generation. The psalm generates surely in our hearts a longing desire that we might hear God speaking to us, and that we might listen to him. What would he speak? He surely, as we find in the psalm here, speaks peace to repentant people who did not turn again to folly, to futile living. This psalm would encourage us to be filled with expectation. 
expectation that will sustain us in the heart of the battle. An expectation that whether or not it pleases God to in this sovereignty give us days of revival or not. The future is assured. The future is assured. If we are in Christ, the future is glorious and therefore the disciplines of living a godly life and for the kingdom of Christ is a price worth paying. Paul again reminded us in that passage that Scott read to us. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Or it may be that there is much that grieves us in our own lives and in our own walk with God and that burdens us and concerns us. It may be that as we face living out the Christian life in our generation, we're finding it going tough, discouraged. We're finding that there is much that is sheer disciplined, dogged determination to plough a straight furrow. And in those moments of discouragement, we can think the sun is no longer shining. Let's lift our eyes beyond the cloud of discouragement. And let's remind ourselves, as Paul did, that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us as God's redeemed people. And it shall ultimately lead us to the foot of the cross in humble confession and worship, that place where love and mercy meet, where grace reaches us, where we are. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at your word, your word brings challenge to us. Yet your word brings encouragement to us. Help us, Lord, as individuals to know what it is to trust in the Lord Jesus to be assured that we are part of his kingdom. And Father, we pray that you will enable us to clear our hearts and minds from all the things that clutter them and live with eternity's values in view and live with hearts that are passionate for the glory of God and the advance of the kingdom of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.